Isaiah 40, 12 through 31. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman crass it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman and sets up an idol that will not move. Do you not know, do you not hear, has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who has created these? Who has brought out their host by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing." Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated. I invite you to please keep your um, passage open as we'll be kind of just like working through these different verses. But before uh, we, we kind of look again at them, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, your word here reminds us of how, how far beyond uh, us you are and how impossible it is for us to conceive of who you are. And yet you are also the God who speaks to us and tells us about yourself. So Lord, um, 
resting in the reality that you are a God who loves us and who speaks to us, we ask that you, in your mercy, would help us to hear you and to see you more clearly, that more and more deeply our confidence might be in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know uh, Julie Andrews says uh, the very beginning is a very good place to start, but I'm going to kind of go against her advice and, and bring us to the very end of the passage to kind of orient us from the outset, because I think the end really helps us to understand what this passage is about. And so verse 31 is, for me, one of the most striking verses in this whole passage of incredibly striking verses, where it says, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Um, now, if you backed up and noticed, like, the surrounding area, you'll notice that this passage seems to be written for tired people. Um, you, you know, if you just back up a couple of verses, it talks about how God doesn't get tired, but then he gives power to those who get tired, and then it acknowledges even young people eventually get tired. I mean, which sometimes doesn't seem believable if you're a parent of young children, but eventually they do conk out. And, and if young people get tired, of course, so do the rest of us. Everyone gets tired. Maybe some of us are feeling really tired right now. But then we have this kind of turn that's a bit surprising in verse 31 where it says there is this possibility, we might even say something that God desires of us so that we might be able to run and not get tired. And it, and it likens this to an eagle. Have you ever seen an eagle fly in the mountains? It seems like they can be in the air for hours without ever even having to move their wings. There is a, kind of an endlessness to their ability to move. They don't get worn down. And, and God says, that is something that I have for my people. And, and so you have this image where it says, renewing your strength. And really, renewing here is not quite the right way to translate it. The idea is almost replacing, exchanging one kind of strength for another. He says, I, I'm going to, instead of the strength that you have, because humans run out of strength, I'm going to give you a different kind of strength that doesn't run out. And how does that happen? They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. If we want to have this endurance that can keep going and doesn't, be, doesn't get worn down, God says, wait on me. That is... Take hold of my promises and organize your life around the reality of them. Keep praying, keep trusting, keep obeying, expecting me, even in the moments where you don't see it, to come through and fulfill my promises. If you wait on me in this way, you will find your strength replaced with something that does not run out. That's, that's really where this passage lands. And so I want us to just from the outset acknowledge something, and that is that what this says seems in some way to be the opposite of what we experience. Right? Doesn't it seem, if we just try to hear this and think about our own lives, that it is precisely in those areas that we are waiting that we are most weary 
So maybe for some of you, it's an employment situation. You have been without a job for a while, and you keep trying, and it just doesn't seem to get anywhere. Or maybe you are in an employment situation right now, but it's miserable, it's toxic, and you are trying to honor God faithfully in it and, 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 be, and handle it well, but you are just sapped, and you are worn down. Or maybe for some of you, it's in a difficult marriage situation where you have been in kind of this complicated relationship for a while in terms of it just seeming to not, not get any better, and both of you feel at odds, and, and you keep waiting for it to get better, and you keep on working at it, and there's just no hope, and as you're waiting, you are getting worn down. Or, or, or maybe it's about personal growth. You, you've heard that following Christ should be a, a life of ongoing repentance and, and growth and change. And there are some aspects to yourself that you have seen that, if you're honest, you don't like. You, you don't want to keep on being angry. You don't want to be self-centered. But even as you try to change, it keeps on feeling like you fail and, and you are just worn down. Or, or maybe, maybe it's as you're praying for others, you are... You are longing to see people come to know Christ, and, and so you've been praying, and you've been trying to be faithful, and there's just no fruit, and, and you are weary. Doesn't it seem like it's precisely in those areas that we are waiting, not that we find our energy replaced, but we find our energy gone? And, and I suspect Israel, to whom this was written, would say the same thing. They, remember, have been removed from their city. They have been exiled. There is no more temple. There is no more hope from their perspective. And they're being told to just keep praying and keep trusting. The very idea seems utterly exhausting to them. But, but where our passage goes, where you see God pastoring His people well, is God correcting Israel, and He says, Israel, you are not weary because you are waiting. You are weary because you have stopped waiting. You are weary because you have lost hope. If we just back up a few verses, we see God speaking specifically to them in that regard. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. So that's an interesting idea of my way, my pathway. It, basically, it's saying Israel feels right now like they're lost in the desert. They're wandering. They have no idea how to get home. They have no idea how to kind of make anything better. And they're like, God, don't you see us? Can't you help us? And it seems like God is absent. My right is disregarded by my God. Imagine being in a classroom and you just keep on raising your hand to every question and the teacher just always ignores you as if you're not there. That's how it feels for Israel. Israel feels like every time they're praying, every time they raise their hand, God is just going right by them. They feel disregarded by God. Later, it says that God's people say, I have been abandoned and forgotten by God. We, we, I should say, when it says, why do you say, the idea is keep saying. In other words, it's not just um, an expression of their mouth. Maybe they actually never literally said, my way is hidden. It's more an expression of their hearts. As, as they look at their lives in exile, they do not look with expectancy. They don't look prayerfully. They look and believe that God has forgotten them. That there is no reason to be optimistic. There's no reason to expect anything good because God has been removed from the picture. 
And, and what I would like to suggest to us is that you and I oftentimes have come to the same conclusion in certain areas in our life. Not, not likely that many of us have actually literally said, God has forgotten me and abandoned me, although maybe sometimes we say that. At least we don't usually say that with our mouths because we know that seems almost inappropriate. But sometimes we say that in our hearts. Just think back for me for a moment. You know, I listed a number of areas where we sometimes find ourselves waiting and wearied. Think, think is, is one of those true for you? Or if not, what is an area in your life where right now you are just feeling worn down by? Get, get something fixed in your mind so you're thinking about something tangible. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you praying about it? Like, are you praying regularly? Are you praying hopefully? Are you praying expectantly? My guess is for some of you, the answer is yes. I, I am praying and I believe God will answer. I just, it, it's taking a long time, but I know God will do something sometime. But my guess is for many of us, and I include myself in this, the answer when we think about it is, well, well, no. I mean, I was praying for a while, and it just doesn't seem like anything is happening, and maybe I pray sometimes, but it feels honestly, if I'm, if I'm really honest, half-hearted, because I just really, I don't think God's going to do anything. And, and here's what we're actually saying when we have kind of treated our weariness in that way. We're saying, God either doesn't know or He doesn't care. My way is hidden from God. My right is disregarded by my God. Now, now, why do we come to that conclusion? Why does our heart somewhere deep down decide that we don't think God is going to do something good in an area that we feel so exhausted by? I mean, it's not like Scripture says somewhere in some psalm, if after a month God doesn't answer your prayer, well, you know what God means then. We, we've just come to that conclusion ourselves. Why? There is some sense that we feel like well, we can read between the lines. We can understand from our experience. God clearly isn't interested in this part. And, and that's, that's what Israel is doing too. They, they're like, hey, we were besieged by Babylon, and where was God? We heard people screaming as the soldiers broke through the walls, and where was God? We were hungry and exhausted as we marched to exile, and where was God? We can read between the lines. We know that God has decided He's not interested in us or He has forgotten us. And, and here's, here's what God says in response to this, this hopelessness that is sapping all of the energy from them. It's like, you have gotten this wrong because you have gotten me wrong. Because you have come to decide that I am just a really, really powerful version of you. So, uh, backing up for just a moment, probably many of us, or let me just, I'll ask, I won't make assumptions. Have you ever been in a situation where you've just dramatically misread what someone meant? Like you saw an expression and you thought they meant one thing or you heard them say something and you assumed this is what it meant and you were just completely off. I mean, I know I have. And, and, I, and as I've sometimes kind of done a 
post-mortem of, wow, that went wrong, why? I've come to a startling conclusion, and that is, other people are different from me. Like, really different from me. Like, what I've realized is oftentimes, when I see someone else saying something or looking a certain way, in my mind, I think, now, if I were saying it this way, or if I were saying these words, this is what I would mean, so clearly, that's what that person must mean. And of course, there's a real problem with that, because each of us do say things differently, and we do mean things differently, and kind of growing in maturity comes to realize that. Now, apply what I just said to God. Think of how deeply, deeply different God is from us. See, Israel is, or or even when we sometimes have come to a conclusion that God has missed us or forgotten us, what we are actually saying in our brains deep down is, if I were in God's place, if I had chosen for me to be stuck in this job for this period of time, or if I had chosen for me to be in this really difficult situation, that would clearly mean that I had stopped caring. Therefore, God clearly must mean that as well. But why are we so sure that we can get a read on God? I mean, God's, that's God's response when it says, Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you declare, O Israel, my way is hidden from the God, from the Lord? What does God say? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Do you not understand just how utterly different God is from you? I mean, do we? Uh, Let's just think about what this passage is showing us, because this passage is all about changing the way that we see God. It begins, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? If you've ever been on the beach, just think about the last time you've been on the beach and just how big the ocean or Lake Michigan feels. It feels so vast. And now, in your mind's eye, imagine this massive hand that is so big you can't see all of it, just scooping all of that water and it all being encompassed in his palm. Or or imagine the, the, the dust of the earth being just scoop the entire earth just like a measuring cup just picking it up or if you look at the sky and one hand span measures it all and it says who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure who well only god god is so far beyond us and not only that he's so much more ancient than us Right after, it says, who has, whom did God consult? Who made him understand? So here's the question. We, we all have grown up learning from someone else, right? You've learned to speak because someone else spoke to you. You've learned how to understand things because someone else taught you. Who, did, who taught God? And the answer is no one because God is the beginning. He is the one from whom knowledge comes, and he has always always, always, always 
always been. There is never a time, no matter how far back you go, where God was not there. Can you imagine what it would be like to be that way? Of course you can't. Neither can I. And God continues and says, okay, so who are you going to liken me to? It's actually a pretty good question because if we're trying to understand we don't, something we don't know, we begin by comparing it to something we do, right? So, like, sometimes someone might say, hey, have you ever tried alligator? And you'll ask, I don't know, what is it like? And they'll say, well, it tastes like chicken. Or, or you know, someone might say, hey, have you seen this new series, The Mandalorian? No, what is it like? Well, it's, it's like samurais in a Star Wars universe. It's pretty cool. So, there's, we always start with, with something like. So, God says, now do me. What am I like? Maybe the nations. The nations is one of the things that in, God's, in that time God's people looked to and was like, wow, they're powerful. Ahaz trusted in the nations, not God. Do you think the nations compare it to me? And, it's, and God says, the nations are a drop in the bucket to me. A prince will rise up. A leader will look really powerful for, I don't know, 10, 20 years, and all it takes is God just doing, and he's done. Nations don't compare to God. How about idols? Idols are almost by definition God comparisons. They're human depictions of what they think God is like, which already shows the problem. This is something like some craftsman can make and form, and then at the very end, it just stays put, and we're supposed to think that's the majestic God? How absurd. So what do you compare me like so you can understand me? How about the stars? I mean, the stars seem like a pretty good place to start. I mean, people used to invest the stars with understandings of, of them representing gods. They would navigate their lives thinking the stars showed them their way. And, and let's be honest, the stars are pretty awesome. And there's just so many of them. I was looking it up this week. I mean, I feel like the solar system in and of itself is massive. And then you realize that we're just one star in the Milky Way galaxy. And people estimate somewhere around 200 billion stars plus or minus 100 billion in our galaxy alone. But, but that's just one galaxy. The, the most recent estimates first started thinking, they think that there are 200 billion galaxies, 200 billion Milky Ways, and then the Hubble telescope kind of came back with some more information, like, oh, we got this wrong. There's actually 2 trillion. 2 trillion galaxies of 100 billion stars. There are so many of them. They seem so massive, and yet... What does God say? To whom will you compare me in verse 25? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's talking about the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God is the one who just kind of laid every single of these stars, all two trillion of 200 billion galaxies, and he knows each one by name, and he's the one. To him, it's like just like one Lego set that he is constructing. Do you want to, do you want to compare me to those stars? God says, no. So, so what do we compare God to? If a kid comes to us and says, what's God like? What are we going to say? Well, God is like there's nothing. There is no, there is nothing. There's not like we have like a bunch of within the God category that we've had experience of. So it's like this or it's like this. He is so completely, completely other from anything our mind can completely understand. 
And so when we have come to the conclusion that we say, well, I get how God is in this. I can read between the lines. My instincts can figure this out. Or if we ever say, you know what, I don't think it would make sense for God to be this way. Or the God that I believe in certainly can't be this way. We are clearly doing it wrong. Because we don't know what it's like to be God. We can't read between the lines and assume that because we know if we did it this way, therefore God would. Israel can't. That's why God's like, why do you say I'm the everlasting God. I've created the ends of the earth. I don't grow tired. You are not going to wrap your mind around me. There is no way that we can just go based on our intuitions or how things feel that we can figure out whether God has decided he is not going to answer our prayer. We can't just conclude because of our experience, God's clearly angry at me. God clearly has forgotten me. We we can't draw those conclusions. There is only one way that we can truly know what God is like, and that is when He tells you. That is when the God of the universe who is beyond our ability to comprehend says, this is who I am. And what does He say about Himself? We saw it last week, do you remember? I am God, and I am committed to loving you. I am God, and I am committed to forgiving you. I am committed to gently coming to you and bringing you to myself. Don't let how you feel keep you from hearing what I say. And what is it that God says? Well, again, Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. It's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God where God spoke into this world, saying, let me tell you who I am by becoming one of you. Do you want to know who I am? Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. And what do you see? You see my commitment to love you, to forgive you, to come to you, gently and bring you to me and to make all things right. That is who I am. And it's as we come to understand this that we finally get to the way we began our passage or began looking at our passage in verse 31. Here's how we begin to understand this new kind of strength that God has to offer us. It's a strength that comes when we let go of believing just what we feel might be true of God, and we increasingly lean on what God says is true of Him. When we increasingly trust in God's promises and experience hope. Let's think just for one more time about the the image of the eagle. Why, Why is it that eagles are able to endlessly fly? It is not because they have way more energy than anyone else. It is because the strength for flying they have, they draw from outside of themselves. They rest on a force that is far greater than them. The up currents, the winds, they do almost nothing because the wind does almost everything for them. 
And in the same way, when we're speaking of an energy, a strength that does not grow weary, it comes not in our own strength. Even youths grow tired and weary. But in us learning to rest, and this is a process, but learning to rest in the reality that what God says is more trustworthy than what we feel. Because as we do that, that gives us a hope. That gives us a strength. And it's not, what I'm talking about is not a strength that is like this suddenly boundless energy and enthusiasm and the sugar rush that a few hours later you're out of. And and I'm not talking about some sort of effortless ease. We never see Jesus or his followers having an effortless ease. We're talking about a strength that is deeper and quieter and yet far more resilient than anything else we know. It's the strength, there's a psalmist who in Psalm 118 speaks about how he is being attacked by people, but then he says, the Lord is on my side, so I will not fear. For what can man do to me? And we might reply, well, quite a bit, actually. You can take away your stuff, take away your job, take away your life. And yet the psalmist would say, yeah. But then God has the final word, and he's on my side. Or I'm reminded in um, the, 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 the classic by J.A. Packer, Knowing God, of him speaking of this, this mentor of his who had gotten involved in kind of a political battle where his convictions about the gospel caused him to lose any kind of sense of advancement in his work. And, and the guy, after kind of talking about it to Packer, said, but that's okay, it doesn't matter, because I've known God, and they haven't. And so he is able to keep going. Or, or the kind of strength I'm talking about is a strength that Luther displayed. If you're familiar with the history of the Reformation, Luther was the one who really started moving forward this cause where the church was able to apprehend in a newer way the grace of God. It was something that was so important, and yet in the middle of it, like about 20 years after the nailing of the 95 Theses, Luther's protege, Philip Melanchthon, was feeling hopeless. It looked like the tide was turning against him. There were some things that were published that seemed to be swaying people's opinion, and Melanchthon was trying to write something in response, and he felt just at an end of himself, he felt hopeless. And, and Luther, and I don't have time to read the whole letter, it's blunt, because Luther's always blunt. Um, but, but he wrote this, and this, here's what he wrote about why, why he, he can hope. He's, basically, he says, if this is not of God, well, we don't want it to survive anyway. But if this cause is of God, we can be confident. And he wrote, I, for my part, am not very much troubled about our cause. Indeed, I'm more hopeful than I expected to be. God, who is able to raise the dead, is also able to uphold his cause when it is failing or raise it up again when it has fallen or to move it forward when it is standing. If we are not worthy instruments to accomplish his purpose, he will find others. Do you sense the resilience in that statement? This is not because Luther was just an especially optimistic guy. If you know anything about Luther, you know that he would have 
deep inner turmoil at times of his own lack of confidence in even the grace of God. That's, that's not what it is. The reason that he has this resilience is he has a settledness of heart that he realizes that what God says, he can trust. And because of that, he can keep going. And that's, that's what God is saying. It's, it's, it's not about the strength that we have within us. We will get tired. It's about the strength of God and His Word and coming to understand that God is far greater and far stronger and far more faithful than anything we can imagine. And if we can understand that and allow that to be the defining truth, then we discover a strength, a strength to keep Praying and trusting and obeying even when things don't seem to be changing. A strength to face disease and be battered by it and worn down and yet to continue. Not because there's strength within you, but because you know God is strong. A strength to keep fighting for your marriage, not because you think that you have figured out some way, but because you know God says, I am with you, and that is enough. Strength to keep praying for those that you love, that you are longing to see come to know Christ, not because you think you are a powerful prayer, but because you know God has promised that he hears your prayers, whether you feel like it or not. What I am saying is there is an energy that God wants to give to us, not an energy to just keep on acting and acting and acting. That's not what it's talking about, but a a resilience to keep going. And that resilience comes not in finding strength within ourselves, but finding strength in the promises of God and coming to recognize just how much greater He is than anything we can imagine. And because of that, learning to place our hope in Him. And so what I like to do, as we always do every week, is to just spend some time before God, acknowledging before Him that we have shrunk God in our own eyes, acknowledging that we oftentimes place our trust in our own understanding rather than in His words, and allowing God to cleanse us and to lead us back to Him. Would you please Join with me in a time of of silent prayer.